0: This is WERU phone volunteer Bob from Soamesville.
1: And
2: Kate from Belfast.
3: We want to thank you for calling in and keeping us busy this week.
2: And thank you for all your support.
3: And this is WERU's General Manager, Matt Murphy. On behalf of our volunteers, staff, and Board of Directors, a great big thank you to all the members and volunteers who made the pledge drive a success. We truly appreciate your support of WERU Community Radio. Thank you.
1: time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next.
2: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with the help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Our show today is about softshell clams, the iconic Maine shellfish that has been part of Maine's culture forever. In terms of fisheries management, clams are fairly unique in Maine because citizens who serve on town shellfish committees help set municipal policy about harvesting, and commercial clammers are actively involved in local management. This long-standing collaborative approach has served the industry and coastal communities well, but clams have dramatically declined lately, affecting our valuable clam industry as well as our mudflats. <clears throat> our guests in the studio today will help us understand some of the complexities of the changes happening in our mudflats and how you citizens who live in coastal towns can get involved in helping address issues facing the softshell clam. So in the studio today we have a great bunch of folks who are going to help us kind of tease out these issues We have quite a diversity of guests today We have three in the studio and a fourth that we'll have on the line a little bit later um, So in the studio we have Michael Pinkham who is the clam warden in Goldsboro and Steuben. Hi Mike Good Morning um, We also have Ronnie Parrott who is a clammer from Ben and Goldsboro, And has also been a member of the local clam committee for a number of years Hi Ronnie, welcome
3: mm-hmm. Hi
2: And then we also have Bridie McGreevy, who is from the University of Maine, and she's a member of the state's shellfish advisory committee. Hi, Bridie. Hi, Natalie. Um, And then later in the program, we will have Jessica Joyce, who is a member of the shellfish conservation committee in Cumberland. So we have quite a diversity of different perspectives here today. And we're looking forward to diving into understanding um, softshell clams a little bit better. Um, so why don't we hear a little, start by hearing a little bit from each of our guests just about what it is that you do related to clams and how you got into it. And why don't we start with Ronnie, who's our clammer from Stuben and Gouldsboro. Ronnie, how'd you get into clamming? How long have you been clamming?
3: Uh, it's kind of just a family thing. Started when I was six years old. My older brother's. Dragged me along, and that was the start.
2: Great. And how long ago was that start?
3: Uh, uh, 55 years ago.
2: Wow. You have some perspective behind you. And where do you clam?
3: Uh, Steuben, Gooseboro area.
2: And do you, are are the places where you clam from one year to the next, are they the same, or do you change over time based on what you're seeing? How does Uh, that work?
3: Rotate them, but seem to always try each area we move around uh different tides will allow you to go to different areas 55 years i've been on most of the mud so
2: i bet you have yeah yeah great well we're looking forward to hearing your stories about clamming in the neighborhood um and mike you are a clam warden tell us a little bit about how you got into this work
4: Well, I came about it uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other. I was Marine Patrol officer for over 33 years. And when I retired, the local um, municipality, Gooseboro, was looking for a shellfish warden, and they asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said I'd give it a try. And the the learning curve from going from enforcement to management has been pretty steep for me, but I've relied on a lot of people um, to give me a hand along the way, and I'm enjoying myself.
2: So you said going from enforcement, which is when you were with Marine Patrol, to management, now as a clam warden. Can you tell us a little bit about what a clam warden does?
4: Well, I do do enforcement in that. I do, I do regulate licenses. Um, every digger has to have a license, commercial or recreational, um, to keep uh, um, non-residents out of town from digging our clams. Um, we have no digging at night, no digging on Sunday. We have um, conservation areas that are closed on a rotation. So I have to enforce all those things also.
2: And then what's the management
4: Um, Planning planning where to put clams, um, um, talking about size of clams, uh, the areas that you – the biggest thing that we have is management of the flats. We have a rotation, and we open them up at certain points in time. We try to open them for maximum profit to the digger.
2: Got it. Okay. Great. Thanks. We're looking forward to hearing more from you as well as we go on. And then, Bridie, you're at the University of Maine, and you've been engaged in all kinds of research projects in collaboration Mm -hmm. with Clammers on the Ground. Um, And you're also on the Maine Shellfish Advisory Committee. Commission? Council. Council. Thank you. I knew I had it wrong there. Shack is the acronym. Um, So tell us a little bit about how a researcher at the University of Maine got into this work. Yeah. So my field
1: is environmental communication, and I'm really interested in how communication shapes the kind of activities and decision making that you see going on in the uh, clam co management system. Um, I started working in this context in 2011 when I was doing some research with the Frenchman Bay Partners, which is where we met initially, Um, and. As part of the work that we were doing in that organization, we, we wanted to understand people's priorities for different kinds of conservation efforts that were going on in and around Frenchman Bay. And there's a regional shellfish committee made up of, at the time, about 70 commercial harvesters working together across towns to steward the intertidal shellfish resource. Um, Can so, you just share what seven towns those are? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's uh, Ellsworth, Lemoyne, Sullivan, and... Um, Hancock, Franklin, Trenton, Sorrento, Trenton, and Sorrento. Great, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. That helped there. Um, and and so we started sh- the, uh, as a representative from the Frenchman Bay Partners. We started showing up, or I started showing up at the shellfish meetings. I had no idea that this was going on on, on Maine's coast, and and um, I found the cooperative approach to trying to protect and grow clams and manage them uh, to be really interesting. And and from a communication perspective, saw lots of opportunities to get involved and and understand what was going on and support those activities. So I've continued that over the last uh, seven years now in a variety of different ways, um, studying and, and trying to find ways to support and strengthen these efforts, bringing a communication perspective
2: great um so we're going to want to dive into what that cooperative approach looks like and hear from all three of you from your various perspectives as clam warden clammer and researcher what that looks like but before we go there um just probably most of our listeners know what a softshell clam is but give us, one of one of you give us an overview of sort of the the clam what what's this animal that we're talking about now Go for it, Ron. Oh, As the clamor. Uh, you are perhaps the most intimately connected with this animal.
3: <laughs> they they range in size from microscopic five inch. I would say would be the upper limit. Uh, live in mud, sand, in the intertidal zone. Uh, Good eating. <laughs> Good eating.
2: Yeah, yeah, an iconic part of our sort of the main experience, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, from an, uh, an ecology perspective, so it primarily lives in mud and sand in the intertidal zone. Um, and uh, do do you see sort of changes in the season with the animals?
3: Uh- They rise up and down at the depth they're at. Obviously, in the winter, they'll go deeper. They probably get cold, too. So uh, areas that I've traditionally harvested can change year to year. Usually, it's more like two or three years that they change.
2: Do you clam all year? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in the winter, you're digging deeper.
3: Yes, and in different areas. Okay.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, So let's learn a little bit about how this collaborative approach to management works. Um, Let's go with Mike. So from your perspective, coming in as a clam warden, which you've been doing for a number of years now, right? Since 13. Since 13. Yeah. So you've got some time under your belt. Um, What does that look like for you as the clam warden on the ground? What does co-management look like for clams?
4: What it happens is, is it like Bridie said we go we have a committee meeting and I don't make the decisions I make recommendations based on what other people have done in the area and talking to the DMR biologists and DEI About and
2: DMR is the Department Marine of Marine Resources, Resources and DEI, DEI is, is the Down East Institute
4: Correct So we talk to them and then we bring recommendations forward to the committee and we discuss areas that we would like to try these projects in or where we'd want to put some seed What works out best they also have um, decisions Ronnie mentioned it just a moment ago that you dig different places in the winter than you do in the summer and as I said earlier that we try to manage the spots where you can get the most product in the summertime when the price is presumably higher because these guys are making a living at it and so we rotate that way so those are decisions and you may try it one year and it may work or it may not work so you're constantly trying to tweak things to make it work the best.
2: Right, right. And Bridie, how does a clam committee work? Who is who is a town's clam committee?
1: Yeah, so across the coast, we see some real variation in who's involved in the clam committee. There are approximately 74 towns that have an active ordinance, um, around 60 total shellfish programs because you do have some, some towns that have gone into these more regional cooperatives like you see in, in Frenchman Bay. In some towns, the committee is made up uh, only of harvesters. In other towns, like in Gouldsboro, you see a mix of people who are playing different roles within the municipality. And then in other towns, I think this is the case in Bar Harbor, uh, clam harvesters are not on the committee, but play an important role in informing the decision-making
2: of the committee. And you said um, that a certain number of towns have an ordinance. So, in order, for explain what that means.
1: Yeah, so it's a town ordinance, and and this is an important part of the co-management system. Is that it's based on a shared responsibility between the municipalities that have adopted an ordinance and the Maine Department of Marine Resources. The the two entities work together to shape the ordinance to spell out what the different regulations are going to be. Um, one of DMR's primary responsibilities is to weigh in on the license allocations and then to also just to support the towns in bringing science to bear on, on decision-making about things like what Mike just described of con- uh, conservation closures and rotations, understanding the, the effects of different types of management strategies. So the area biologists will routinely go to the shellfish committee meetings and, and provide this kind of support and um And and be involved in in a whole bunch of different activities.
2: So it's an integration around management of the resource from the town, the industry, and the state. Yes. Yeah. And Ronnie, as a clamor uh, who's been on your committee, what's been your role? What do you think your your part of that conversation has been over the years?
3: Well, you have to make certain decisions. Uh, Do this, do that. The most important part I feel in it is enforcement. If you don't have enforcement, you've got nothing. No matter if the state does whatever they want, what good is it, right? So uh, that was an area I was big in. Uh, Choosing areas because we know what areas we dig in the winter, what areas are dug in the summer, Things like that would be my would be where I think I've chipped in the most
2: and when you talk about enforcement, so a, a town committee clam committee makes some decisions about where areas are open and closed to harvesting correct. Yes. Um, what sort of drives some of those decisions for a town?
3: Uh, winter and I mean if you're covered with ice, There's no sense having it open in the winter, right? I mean, you can't dig it. Uh, Usually it'll be further down towards deeper water would be a a thing that would be a winter digging. You'd choose that area over a place way in the head of the bay that could get iced over. Uh, Just where mud, sand plays into that, uh, there's other things, but I can't think of right off the yeah. top of my head. But
2: yeah, uh, Mike, what are some of the reasons that um, that areas are opened or closed that are maybe related to clam populations, that sort of thing?
4: Well, first off, I'd like to say that I've had to rely on these guys, the diggers, as institutional knowledge. Yeah. Because Ronnie's been digging for fifty-five years, so he knows what works and what doesn't work. And that also plays into the decision on where we open and close because he knows that in the wintertime there's no sense of having this open. We do, um, we walk the areas, we look to see what there is for clams there. Um, if it's, as he said, if it's iced over, there's no sense of having it open.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that, that long knowledge is, is really critical. Um, so taking a big picture view, um, how are clams doing? Oh. In the state of Maine at the moment.
1: Bridie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so one of the measures that's used to look at trends within the clam industry and and clam populations is license numbers and landings values. Um, And landings have consistently, over the the coast, uh,
2: declined. And can you define the term landings?
1: Yeah, so it's the... um, uh, poundage of clams that is, is sold to market. Great. Um, so we've seen steady declines in clam landings over the last four decades. Um, some studies have suggested 75% declines in clam landings. Dramatic. Dramatic. And we've also seen variation but but declines in license uh, state license sales as well. Uh, last year, I believe the number of licenses sold was somewhere around 1,500 total. Uh, which is down from something like 6,000 in the early 1980s. Wow. So the industry is showing some, some signs of, of decline. Um, but linking landings with clam populations is um, maybe an incomplete measure of what's, what's going on in the mud, and that's something that we, we need to know more about. Um, we need to have better stock assessments to, to understand that relationship between the decline in landings, decline in licenses, and, and what we see going on in the mud. Certainly there are some, some major issues like increasing ocean temperatures linked to increases in green, green crabs that definitely having an impact on localized clam populations. But there's a gap in knowledge there and understanding across the coast are we seeing uh, declines in clam population in the mud itself.
2: Okay. So let's talk about green crabs for a minute because they've been in the news a lot lately. Uh, And we've had green crabs as a topic on Coastal Conversations. So some of our listeners have been paying attention to this issue for a long time. So green crabs, correct me if I'm wrong, green crabs have been on the rise dramatically for the last number of years, especially the last decade. Um, And there is strong belief that green crabs are – the rise is correlated to the rising temperatures of the water – and they're an important predator for clams. So what are you seeing in the flats, Ronnie? Are you uh, seeing green crabs in your <clears throat> flats in Steuben and Goldsboro?
3: Actually, I I think green crabs are declining. Interesting. Or moving, maybe. Okay. Uh, you know, because I'm not sure what's happening. When the clam population was good, there was lots of them. You saw them all the time. They're still green crabs but not to the extent of what they was four years ago
2: okay yep yep interesting um i think that we are joined by our fourth guest for a little bit we'll come back to predation and changes that you're seeing in the mud um in a a few minutes but let's jump to our fourth guest uh who is jessica joyce who's a member of the cumberland shellfish conservation committee hi jessica
0: Hi Natalie, how are you?
2: Good, it's great to have you. Um, Thank
0: you.
2: So uh, we've been talking all kinds of things about clams. Um, Tell us a little bit about what your role is on a town's uh, clam committee or shellfish committee I should say.
0: Yeah, so I joined the committee when we moved to Maine in 2008 and I was hoping to get involved in the community. Uh, My background is in marine policy and I had mostly worked in the federal government. So I was interested to see how this co-management and system works and get into the municipal management. We've had a number of, I guess, issues that we've addressed over the uh, almost 10 years that I've been on the committee. And the first one was that uh, water quality issue. So the state does testing of water quality um, primarily uh, they they test for many different things, but one of the issues we had in Cumberland was uh, fecal coliform. And we had half of our flats were closed during the summer because of bad water quality scores, and that's the northern part of Broad Cove. And the southern part was open um, typically year-round, but the majority of our acreage was in that area that was closed. And it had been closed for a couple years when I came on board, and it continued to be closed for... I've heard ranges from about 10 to 13 years of that only being open in the winter. And we have a lot of uh, more recreational licenses than commercial. So as you can imagine, a lot of the people who want to access that resource don't want to go out there and dig in the winter <laughs> that are on the recreational side. Uh, the commercial diggers will be there year-round. So we did a lot of work with the DMR a water, Department of Marine Resources, water quality folks, and biologists to work on a shoreline survey, identify some of the point and non-point pollution sources that might have been contributing to those um, bad water quality scores that didn't meet that threshold. From a public health perspective, obviously, you don't want to eat clams that come from contaminated waters. And it took a couple years. Uh, we ended up adding... A conservation fee onto our license so the town could actually do our own water testing in addition to what the state was doing and eventually we did identify um, some sources in the northern part of um, Broad Cove and actually one issue ended up to be a failing septic uh, in Yarmouth on Prince's Point so we had to work with Yarmouth um, in the state to address that issue And last summer um, in 2017 was the first season where Broad Cove was conditionally approved, and that's the term that the state uses when they say, yes, it's open as long as you continue to meet that threshold of clean water. And uh, the issue then was that our clam resource had declined so much that there was really nothing left to dig for.
2: Wow. And do you were you correlating that to the water quality issues or other issues? No,
0: um, I think it's it's you know it's a variety of issues. But as uh, my colleagues have been talking about on the show, a lot of it has to do with predation um, from green crabs, and um, we also do have some milky ribbon worms. So we're you know we're we're not sure. The number of issues that are contributing to this, but we do know that uh, that those are big factors in this, and we do have green crabs in Cumberland
2: interesting, complicated. Um, can you describe uh milky whip ribbon worms for folks who may not know what they are?
0: Yeah, so it's this really long marine worm. And the one thing that I – and it has a uh, proboscis, which I guess is the tongue that they stick in between the two um, shells. And it basically – I think they – I'm not sure what it's called, but they inject um, like a chemical that they have in their bodies, and it liquefies the clam meat, and they suck it out. And um, they're very effective predators, and if you – if they get cut in half, then – they can continue to have each of those halves grow into an own animal, kind of like a starfish losing its leg.
3: <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> um, so, what do you think
2: as a as a citizen of Cumberland? Um, what do you, tell us a little bit about the experience of being on a on a shellfish committee and why why it's important?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that even before I started, there's a lot of changes going on in the environment. And for me, the interest is that it's such a local level that in Maine is is small enough that you you can really get involved in a a hands-in way on on some of these. And we've worked with many folks throughout the Department of Marine Resources, the research community. We've been talking to folks at uh, Manomet in Brunswick and Down East Institute, to figure out if we should be seeding and netting our flats, I think the you know some of the obstacles that we come up against is that um, you know this is a volunteer committee, and um, you know a lot of people on our committee have day jobs, and some of them are retired, um, and to do the conservation work that is really needed at this juncture. You need a lot of volunteer hours. And some of the permit requirements do require that non residents uh, have conservation hours, is what they call them. So, volunteer. And we use them to do surveys of the resources to figure out how many clams and where they are, and also to do projects like this if we wanted to do netting. And because our resource has declined so much, our license sales have really dropped. So, we have, and again, we have. Um, unlimited recreational licenses, and I think in the heyday, maybe sold around 200. And it was definitely a big part of the culture um, in Cumberland for people I heard that they would line up um, to get these when they became available. And we have only a few commercial licenses now. And because we don't have those people buying the license, we don't have the required conservation hours, so it's hard to actually get the manpower um, or woman power to do this, these work that's needed. Can you explain
2: a little bit more what um, what conservation hours are, what they mean?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. So, in our ordinance, and I'm not sure if other ordinances are, are different, but our ordinance says that if you have a non-resident um, license, or actually a resident license, if you do ten or more conservation hours then you will um, automatically get a license the next year. And that is really beneficial to some of, because we have such limited um, commercial licenses, it kind of becomes a a hot commodity. And when we have limited recreational licenses, if you're coming from another town, um, I think that that's also something of, of benefit. And then I think there are some other requirements. I'm not sure if the state has requirements on top of that, around uh, non-resident licenses and and hours. Maybe someone else can speak to that. Mike, it
2: looks like you might have an idea of how conservation hours work in different towns.
4: Um, The state doesn't have a requirement that you have to do conservation hours. They leave it up to the individual municipality. In the town of Gooseboro, we have, um, you have to do, we just actually opt hours. We had five, now we've gone to seven hours of conservation. And you have to do that to get a commercial license. We don't have that requirement on recreational license harvesters, only on commercial. Great.
2: Got it. Um, The other thing I wanted to follow up with you a bit, Jessica, is um, you talked about seeding and netting. Can you talk a little bit about what that's about?
0: Yeah. So uh, I think some of, there's a handful or more communities that are starting this practice, and the issue has been raised a little bit about green crab predation, and that's mostly on the the baby or juvenile clams that we call them. And what's happening is that their research has shown that there is wild seed out there, but it's all being um, eaten before it can get to grow to a size where the, the clams can, can spawn. And the netting has been found to help reduce some of that predation. And there's been lots of different work looking at different mesh sizes, uh, different types of netting, and even using things like flower pots. Um, but in a lot, in results vary depending on the region, and some uh, issue, some areas don't have green crabs as much of a, as much as others. Um, but they have found to be um, successful. But it's you know it's a lot of work, and you have to. Take some of them out in the winter if they're going to ice. Then you have to get permitting from the Army Corps of Engineer, which takes a long time. Um, so there's a lot of planning. And then you have to do conservation closures as part of your ordinance so people aren't digging under those nets. Uh, so there's a lot of planning at the um, you know, state level that goes into that the, and the federal really with the Army Corps permit. So um, aside from a cost because you have to buy seed and uh, down east institute produces Mm -hmm. that but there are wait lists to get the seat so you may try to get on that list one year um because there's so high demand for it and it's a great service that they provide municipalities in maine and i believe in other states um but it's it's really a couple year planning process to be able to do that
2: great thank you for that um do you have any final thoughts you want to share before we let you go
0: I think that in, in my time and experience, the, what the industry could benefit, I think, is more of that regional collaboration between municipal management and the state. I think that Bridie mentioned an example, and we have a lot of shared water bodies, and you know, Cumberland and Yarmouth, and we're not too far away from Freeport and Falmouth, and I think more... Collaboration between the municipalities and also between municipalities and the state will help us address some of these big issues that we're facing.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's great to get a perspective from a member of a CLAM committee and also a perspective from the bottom half of the state. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, And uh, for listeners who are just tuning in, um, that was Jessica Joyce, who is a member of the Cumberland Shellfish Conservation Committee. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on uh, Community Radio, WERU 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and online at WERU.org. And our show today is all about um, the softshell clam. Um, In the studio with us today, we have Mike Pinkham, who is the Gouldsboro and Steuben Clam Warden. We have Ronnie Parrott, who's a clammer from Steuben and Gouldsboro and also has been a municipal committee member um, for a bunch of years. And we have Bridie McGreevy, who's a researcher at the University of Maine and also a member of Maine's Shellfish Advisory Committee. Um, So when we were, oh, and I also wanted to say that um, we would welcome any calls from um, our listeners. If you have comments or experience in your own committee or town that you want to talk about or questions for any of our speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Our toll-free call-in number is 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. So... Jessica was just talking about seeding and netting, and I believe that um Ronnie and Mike, you guys have done some of this work in Steuben and Goldsboro is that is that right
3: i yeah we've i thought so. done a fair amount great. of
2: great, so tell us a little bit about what you've done describe it to us for people who may may not really be able to quite grasp what we're talking about
3: we have have gnats they're roughly fourteen by fourteen. We buy seed clams. You go. You sprinkle the seed. You cover the net. You bury the edges so it nothing can presumably get under it, or you hope nothing gets under it. And that's left there for X amount of time. Uh, usually, when it's warmer weather, when the green crabs are up on the on that area, and then we take them up in the fall.
2: And the, the goal is quite literally to prevent the green crabs from preying on the tiny little clams.
3: That's what the net is for it, not just green crabs. Okay. Could be gulls, could be ducks, could be whatever else eats them. Okay. But basically the idea came from green crabs.
2: Okay. And then the seeding, Jessica was using the term seeding. That's yep. getting seed from someone like the Down East Institute um, on Beals Island yep. and
3: putting Put, the seed. Putting it, putting it, literally walking out in, putting it in.
2: Got it. And what kind of results have you had? What, are you, what have you been seeing?
3: Uh, in places good, in other places bad, uh, a, a question – that we should be asking I think is why did we have a good result here and a bad result here is the mud bad is and, and we usually put them in traditional places that have had clams so and we've had up and down good and bad is it the weather amount of fresh water I, the veritables are endless yeah so, uh, an area that probably needs more work.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, what about other towns? Do you know of, of other towns that have done this kind of work? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really important innovations that's been going on with
1: seeding and netting, again, led by DEI, Brian Beale, Chad Coffin, the Maine Clamers Association, and others, is the development of these predator boxes, what they call Beal boxes, um, that are smaller than the netted areas that Ronnie was describing, but completely exclude um, crabs and other predators because they're fully enclosed. Um, One of the issues in the the netted areas is that when you lay the net over the mud, there might be baby green crabs in the mud already. (laughs) And so then it becomes a feeding frenzy. So we need kind of more uh, totally exclusive netting, like netting that's going to keep everything out. Um, And these, these bill boxes are relatively small. So figuring out... How do we take that idea, make them bigger, and, and bring it to scale is a key challenge and, and one that they're working on and that other people are, are interested in, in contributing to.
2: And I'll just say for um, the benefit of the listeners, you've been hearing a lot about DI, the Down East Institute, which is based in on Beals Island and is sort of a research arm of the University of Maine at Machias. Um, and we are looking to having them come on the show and talk more in more detail about their work um, at a later date.
1: But you, have you been working with the predator boxes or yes. coordinating with – I think the interesting thing in Gouldsboro is the connection to um, – the schools.
4: Yes.
2: Great. Tell us a little bit about that.
4: Well, what we've done is that um, Kyle Pepperman from DEI has come up several times and worked with the students at Sumner Memorial High School um, on a project, and they're doing little um, things, um, trying to check on recruitment, clam clam growth. Um, We set out uh, 72 plant pots the other day. Usually the students help do it but this this spring they're just too busy with the year end of school coming up so we set the parts out so that they can do the research on it next fall when they resume school um, so there are a lot of things like that that are going on and when you do that there's different treatments and I won't get into that because when somebody from DEI comes in they'll tell you about it but great um there's a there's a lot of things going on and as Ronnie said what works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another so what works in Gooseboro may not doesn't work in Stubend and we're, we're neighboring communities. That's and amazing. it doesn't work in Frenchman's Bay, and we're neighboring communities. So you really have to know your own community, your own area.
2: Yeah. That's, that's, that's part of the problem. And I know that you guys in Stubend have done some pretty localized um, changes to your regulations. So tell us a little bit about the legal size that clamors can take, um, take the resource, and how, how you've sort of been thinking about that lately.
4: Well— what happened was is that we got talking about the, the clams. Of course, the state of Maine has a two-inch um, clam law that you can't take any clams under two inches over and exceed ten percent. Well, one of the things that Goosebro did was they reduced their clam size uh, percentage to five percent,
2: meaning that only five percent of say a hundred clams can be smaller than two inches. Correct.
4: And what we the other thing that we did, which Gooseboro was the first one to do, was um, adopt a, a maximum size of four inches.
2: And, and that's unique. Nobody else has a maximum size at the moment.
4: Stu Ben does. Stu Ben and Gooseboro okay. are the only two that I know of right now.
2: And why did you do that? What's the benefit of the, the maximum size?
4: There's two things. First off, um, it's difficult to sell a large clam. But more importantly, the amount of spat that comes from a large clam is – a lot exponentially different a maximum amount compared to a two-inch clam it's in the billions
2: wow wow that um that seems to be across the board for marine animals um it seems like the larger older ones produce more yes yeah so how did that come about how did you guys make that change and and uh Yeah, let's hear from Mike, and then I'd love to hear from the Glamour
4: perspective, (laughs) Well, well, the the thing was is that, like I said, I came from enforcement and trying to manage, so I'm trying to think of ways, kind of think outside the box a little bit, things that other people hadn't done to try to improve the resource in the two municipalities that I'm the shellfish warden for. I'm not making a living off the mud. These folks are, and just it can't go status quo like it was 50 years ago and do nothing. So I was just looking for ways to try to make it better. And that was one of the ways that we discussed it at the committee meetings and decided that it was doable.
2: Great. And what what do you think, Ronnie?
4: How, how? Uh, uh, on that, on, on the 4-inch size,
3: it's not really good to, for a commercial harvester. You can't get rid of it. So because there's it's, not a market? It's just there's no market for 4-inch clams, basically. Maybe to your neighbors or whatever, but... Here and there, so they're putting all this spat into the water to seed the clams. Why not do it? Most, I, I believe, most diggers would agree with that at least to a point. The ones that want it want to eat, want them to eat. Yeah, yeah. so that was a pretty easy sell on most people.
2: Um, yeah, righty.
1: Yeah, so this question that you asked, Natalie, of how did you make this change is one that I've been looking at in in some of the communication research that I've been doing. And I've noticed that when you look across these towns that are doing the seeding and the netting and they're adopting these new policies and, and they're just trying a whole bunch of different adaptive uh, practices; these are towns that have specific types of characteristics, and and one of the most important ones is that they have multiple leaders within the town who are doing different kinds of things, filling different kinds of roles. You have those leaders who are your typical leaders that are out in front, you know, working with news media, just communicating that vision. But then you also have people who are really good at problem solving, who are good at connecting across you know, different institutions with the, within the town. So you have diverse forms of leadership that are, are allowing people to, to innovate and try new things and learn from what works and what doesn't work and potentially share it with other towns as well. And then going back to the point that Jessica Joyce made earlier, we also see in these towns... Uh, good connections with different types of civic organizations, schools getting involved, nonprofit organizations, research organizations. Those connections within the community and across the community are just essential for moving the dial, for thinking outside the box, like Mike mentioned, uh, and making a difference in the face of all of these changes.
2: It um, it makes me think, uh, but we've all uh, other topics that we've covered in the, on this show a lot are the um, – folks involved in restoring streams um, and removing dams and bringing sea run fish back to the streams. And it's reminiscent of this kind of work where a community has a diverse number of folks getting really involved in Mm -hmm. addressing a question on, in their local resource. Um, The local knowledge that you guys have is so critical for this work. So who are, um, who are some of the, who are some of the folks that have been involved? So you talked about, you have the, you have some school kids in Gouldsboro, who have been involved in this in this kind of work
4: yes and just it's kind of a funny story uh, how this evolved is because we have this area that i thought it would be a good place and an opportunity for the gooseborough shellfish community to experiment and try some different things outside the box to manage our own clams well then I found out through um, this, the chairman of the uh, shellfish committee in Stuban was looking for some help to take up these nets because it, it's an intensive amount of labor and thought that students needed community service, that maybe we could involve those students. Up on the woman uh, who heads up the Pathways program at Sumner High School was talking about um, students that were not meeting at Sumner, they have proficiency-based education. And they were not meeting their science requirements, and they were in danger of not graduating. Well, this th- process that I had thought about using in Gooseboro for the diggers and the committee to use translated into can we make it work for the students. So it's 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 blossomed into something that's going statewide. I'm not responsible for the education part. I've been working with Bill Zolick from um, Skutek Institute. Um, made out a lesson plan. Sumner was the first one to do this in this area, and they've actually made out a lesson plan for all schools, coastal communities, to follow and get involved in this with very little expense, but with great learning potential for the students involved. And I'm very excited about that um, because that's our future, these young people.
2: That's really exciting, yeah. And Ronnie, I wanted to ask you, you've been involved as a clamor for more than 50 years you said um, was this kind of stuff happening when you were a kid oh um, no. how, what's what, what have been the changes that you've seen in terms of the community's involvement in helping manage the flats
3: uh, when I was I'm going to say in high school small town that I live in there was like a hundred clam diggers there's like Ten clam diggers now, oh that's okay S- but but it was it was plentiful it I mean, and it was always dig, 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 dig as many as you can, as many as you can, as many as you can. you need more money, dig more clams that's kind of how that how it started, so that's how I learned it, and I was like that. There was no management. dig as many as you can, if you need more money, dig longer, dig harder to make more money. And for years, that's the principle, how I worked. And it went through cycles. It would be up and down. But it was still, if you dug longer, dug harder, get more clams, you'll make more money. I mean, it's pretty simple. Now, with the price up and down, So much closures that was unheard of. Okay. I I I thirty years I never heard of a rain closure. What's a rain closure? I wouldn't even know what it is. Buyers shutting off was an unknown thing. As many as you can get, as many as you can every digger.
2: And can you define a rain closure?
3: Uh, it rains two inches. It shut down. You. State shuts down, clamming, can't buy, can't sell, can't dig, can't do nothing. And why does
2: the sh- state shut it down? At
3: I, I believe it's a pollution issue. Mm-hmm. So
2: So that was totally new.
3: Oh, that was completely new. That's a big change. Uh, as I said, I, I shouldn't say there was no closures from buying. Those would happen when literally they couldn't get, give a clam away.
2: Because there was so much, on yeah. There.
3: There's just so many, but it was everybody digging as many as you could every day, nonstop, day and night, everything. And that's how it worked. That's how I learned about climbing, or at least the business side of it.
2: Uh huh. And then, um, when did you start getting involved at the level of your town?
3: Well. Obviously a hundred diggers digging as many as they can. this it has to decline because they can't grow that quick, right? Uh then as years went on the decline, the decline never came back. You know, it, it was decline, decline, decline. That's that is typical. And and when I started, I'm gonna say you could go into any flat, where the water left 10 feet and you could dig some kind of a clam. Might have been too small. It, they may not have been thick enough, but literally everywhere. That's not true now.
2: Wow. Um, But you still love it. You still love clamming. Uh, what do you love about it?
3: Uh, I shouldn't say you shouldn't say love it. Uh-huh. I'm uh-huh if I was a farmer, i'd plant crops. if I was a coal miner, I'd dig coal. I'm a clam digger, I dig clams yeah yeah yeah
2: it's your it's your way of life yeah it's what you do yeah so yeah um Righty, I know that you've been um you've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of clamors mm-hmm. over the years and um I think our listeners might be interested in hearing about your Clam Cam project. Oh, yeah. And um especially after having uh heard some stories from Ronnie about sort of life as a clamor. Um yeah. and that project helps people kind of connect to what it means to be a clamor. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure.
1: So in the discussions about what's going on in the clam industry there's a tendency to focus on what's going on in terms of the biology and the markets and the economics of it but i've also been really interested in understanding clamming as a culture and how long clamming has been occurring on the coast, um, which goes back at least 1,700 years or more because Maine's Native Americans relied on it, and there are these big shell middens uh, that some researchers at University of Maine are actually documenting and and trying to archive uh, given some of the changes that are going on in the coast. And uh,
2: define a shell midden?
1: A pile of of shells (laughs) Um, mixed with oysters and soft-shell clams, uh, mussels. So as I've been reaching out and, and interviewing clammers, um, I've heard some incredible stories about what it means to, to clam and the different types of, of clamming that people do. And I don't know if Ronnie wants to talk a little bit about some of the differences between digging clams and the, the kind of clamming that you actually do. Uh, I've I've learned I've personally learned a lot going out on the mud flats with Ronnie and others, and just you know watching and learning from them and trying dig clams again, <laughs> where, where i can if i have a, a recreational license um but uh yeah the stories are really rich it's an important part of the cultural fabric and this this clam cam project that you mentioned that i'm co-leading with my phd student tyler quiring and another student carter hathaway We've worked with clamors t- um, to document clamming and, and they wear gopro cameras and it's giving us a sense of you know what clamming is as a practice, the kind of objects that people use, the mud type in different places, the rhythms and the sounds and the textures of clamming, I think in really rich ways. Ronnie wants to add to, to some uh, of those stories.
3: At different times of the year, for me, I go into different areas, try to go off into the mud in the summer, warmer months. When they're showing good, when they're easy to get, that's what you'll see. Large holes, you can t- just pick them along with your hand. Uh, in winter, n- not so many holes. Out in the mud, no holes. So uh, I move into harder ground, usually up further in in the inner tidal, and use a hoe. Uh,
2: can you describe a little bit the difference in literally how you do it using a hoe versus pulling them out with your hand?
3: put <clears throat> use it, the amount of work that goes into it is is different i guess is the way to i would put it when you're out in the mud pulling them it's walking it's all your legs you don't have to pull anything over there is n- no nothing it's just walk along pick your holes pick your holes and when you move up and pick up a hoe it's all arms no there's very little walking or at least not much walking and it's com- completely different
2: yeah yeah and pulling you're putting your hand in where you see the hole and you're grabbing been, the clam and with your hand
3: the clam will slide right into your hand out it comes
2: and that's a good moment <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so the clam cam, Bridie, yeah. is something that that our listeners can go online and quite literally view exactly. the experience from the perspective of a clammer who's holding a ca- who has a camera on their body yes. as they're working. Yes. So if you just
1: type in main clam cam, it will be the first link that comes up and we have an archive of videos. It's it's kind of in the essence of slow TV if you're familiar with that of watching things like fly fishing for hours. <laughs> That's what it is, but it's you know, it's relaxing and meditative and you know, I I grew up eating piles of steamers. I'm from Maine originally, but I had never gone out clamming. And I think a lot of other folks, whether you're from Maine or not, probably in the same kind of situation. So this is a window into it, maybe an entry point for some people who want to learn more about clamming and, and potentially get involved, either as a clammer or showing up and being a part of these municipal efforts, because there's a real need for more people to understand and appreciate clamming and, and to find ways to get in and support these efforts. It's, it's in my view, you know, one of the most important ways
2: to help save this industry. So, which brings us to the question of the future, um, Mike, I'm going to start with you. What do you what do you envision is the future of um, clamming in Maine from your perspective as a warden in terms of what you're seeing um, and what you'd like to see in the coming future?
4: Well, I think that the future obviously is unknown, but I think if, if municipalities don't start doing something, the future for them in the soft-shell clam business is, is going to end, unfortunately, because a clam is infected is affected, excuse me, by our environment. And we've got to do what we can do to manage those. And if you take a proactive repro- uh, approach, instead of waiting for it to just flatten out and be gone, um, you may stay ahead of the curve. And you can hope that you can. It's not, a, it's not a guarantee. But I know that I dug clams when I was in high school and in college, so I'm not new to the clamming business I certainly have never, no as near done as many as, as Ronnie has. But um, it's an important industry for local communities to have an option for people to make a living. And if they don't do something and get proactive, it's going to disappear, unfortunately.
2: So municipalities getting more deeply engaged. yeah. Yes. How about you, Ronnie, from the perspective of someone who's been in this industry for your whole life? What do you see in the future?
3: Uh, I'll agree with him if if you don't do something it is going to decline where you can't make a living at it how do you get it better try when I started on the clam committee whatever they wanted done anything that we tried good with me Mm -hmm. that's better than doing nothing because doing nothing, you know where it's going. So that's kind of the perspective I took on it. Uh, don't worry about failing. Don't do it again after it fails, but... Uh, tried everything. We'd, we'll try anything in Stuben Oh, we, we... That might be shifting a little bit because there's new management involved in it. But we have always... Anything, try it, see yeah. what happens.
2: Yeah. So, try any kind of method to help protect the clams. Great. And Bridie, what about you? How about some parting thoughts from you?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think that as we've talked about here, the situation is is pretty um, dire in some ways. Climate change is a reality. This is something that we're we're going to be dealing with. Um, There are a lot of people and towns who are trying different things and adapting. And I I think there's great opportunity for other people to get involved in those efforts to support what's going on in a municipal level and use that as an opportunity for strengthening it, for bringing science to bear on it and and advancing effective policies.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks to all three of you. Uh, We've come to the end of our coastal conversation. So I just wanted to first thank Michael from Michael Pinkham from the Gouldsboro and Stubin, who is the Gouldsboro and Stewben clam warden and thank Ronnie Parrott, who is a clammer from Stubin and Gouldsboro and Bridie McGreevy, who's with the university of Maine and a member of Maine's shellfish advisory committee. And earlier in the show, we also heard from Jessica Joyce, who's a member of the Cumberland shellfish conservation committee. Um, So our next show in June, will be talking about Maine's coastal birds and the Maine breeding bird Atlas. Um, So look forward to that in June. uh, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.